Can you imagine being an author with more success than Stephen King, of all people? He's written more than 60 novels, 200 short stories. Almost 400 million copies of his books have been sold. 40 of his works have been adapted to film or to television, to comic books, inspiration for music, including Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper from about 1976, if I remember correctly. It defies logic, really, because most of his works are horrific, and you'd think that Stephen King is a blood-drinking, shaman-shaking madman, but he's not. He has lived in boring Maine. Boring is good, by the way, his entire life, except as the occasional snowbird to Sarasota. I mean, Maine, really. He has been married to the same woman for 50 years. He has three well-adjusted adult children, two of which who are authors, and one is an ordained minister. But his writings, another word I've learned during COVID uh, quarantine from my son Braden, his writings are sketchy, man. A walk down memory lane from some of his more successful works reads like a nightmare from my childhood. In Carrie, he created a supernatural but fragile and bullied prom queen who murders her entire class. In The Shining, Jack Nicholson goes completely psycho and red rum, red rum in the Colorado Rockies. Cujo is a rabid St. Bernard dog terrorizing a woman and her son hiding in a Ford Pinto. In Children of the Corn, a group of cult-crazed Nebraska teenagers off all of the adults in town for the sake of a better harvest. Where does this gruesomeness come from? I'm, I'm traumatized just recalling these films and these books. But not all of his works are completely horrific. Misery, starring Lauren Bacall, James Caan, Kathy Bates. It has that terrible scene of cracking ankles, to be sure, but it's more of a thriller than a horror flick. And there is The Green Mile. Cindy will watch it this evening because she has never seen this movie. It has all of King's fantasy and supernatural elements, but it is a dramatic masterpiece starring the late Michael Clark Duncan, who should have won the Oscar, and a pitch-perfect Tom Hanks. And then there is his finest work. In this book, in this movie critic's estimation, The Shawshank Redemption, and I'm not alone in that assessment. It's the most rewarded work of Stephen King's long career. And the only reason it didn't win Best Picture in 1995 was because another film you may have heard of was just a little bit better, and that film was Forrest Gump. It was the Shawshank Redemption that I quoted last week. Red, played by Morgan Freeman, is a lifer at Shawshank, Shawshank Prison. He committed murder as a young man. He has accepted his fate. Andy, played by Tim Robbins, is a former successful banker, framed for a murder he did not commit. He, too, is in Shawshank Prison. He knows he doesn't belong there, and over the years, he never loses sight of that fact. But Red tells Andy to accept the tragedy that has befallen him, and he tells Andy to give up hope. And that line from last week, that line from the movie, Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. Red sees hope as a cruel joke, 
Hope is just another word for dashed expectations. You're, you're never getting out of this. It's something that's going to break you, says Red. Andy is not convinced. Nineteen years he is in prison before he makes his way out. I won't tell you exactly how. Nineteen years for a crime he did not commit, and it was hope that sustained him. His retort to Red, I also quoted last week, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. And that for me is hope's definition. It is what never dies. It is the stuff of endurance and resiliency. It gets all tangled up with faith and love to be sure. But hope is a fuel that keeps burning, keeps us moving. As that first poster for the release of the Shawshank Redemption put it, fear can hold you prisoner. Hope can set you free. And today, as we return to the book of Ruth, now in chapter 2, this is what we are finding for our friend Naomi. Naomi escaped a foreign land to avoid the death of her children and family. A, a famine threatened to starve them all. They leave the country. They survive in the short term. Over two decades, her husband dies. Her two sons marry, but they die as young men. It's an Andy Dufresne unjust prison sentence of sort for Naomi. So she decides to go home. Back to Bethlehem. One of her daughter-in-laws, the namesake of this great book, Ruth, returns with her. Naomi is bitter. She is rank. She is resentful. But she still carries hope in her heart. How do we know this? She is still moving. She's fighting with God every step of the way, blaming God, shaking her fist at God. But she hasn't quit. Hope is there because God is still her God. And Ruth embracing this God for herself, will reinforce this hope with the events that we read about today. Ruth makes a decision, and with Naomi's blessing, she goes out to the fields to pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor, she says. It's early spring in southern Israel. The barley harvest is coming in. Farmers have hired young men to cut the stalks of grain low at the ground. The young men are hired to do this, and then the young ladies are hired to tie them together in sheaves. Think of an old world hay bale. And these two crews, the cutters and the sheave tires, one crew men, one crew women, are paid employees, paid laborers. But there is a third group in the field. They are not paid. They are the poor, the orphaned, the widowed, the outcast, the disabled, travelers, foreigners. By Mosaic law, and they all didn't follow this law, but the good ones did, farmers were required to leave the outside edges of their fields uncut. Let the grain stand so that those who aren't fo farmers who can't or don't own land, at least they can gather their daily bread. They were also allowed to pick up the leftovers. Any grain that didn't make its way into the sheaves was fair game for those field cleaners that would come along behind. And this is where Ruth goes out to work. She's qualified in spades for this third job. 
She's poor. She's widowed, just as her mother-in-law Naomi is. She's a foreigner. She's not a landowner. And this is the only way she can survive within safe parameters. But even here, it is dangerous. There has to be a stifling fear when she leaves Naomi's home to go do this. She's young. From some of the accounts in Ruth, she appears striking, exotic even. She catches the eye. She's vulnerable because of her place in society. She doesn't know all the customs and the language. She could be taken advantage of easily. Just imagine. For me, it's not that hard to imagine. I'm thinking of a young girl I met on the streets of San Salvador years ago. At the time, she might have been 15, maybe. Beautiful child. A beautiful, beautiful child like a Mayan princess who had come to visit in the 21st century. But she wasn't a princess. She was thrown to the wild, thrown to the wolves. Her story, like so many children in Central America, and yes, like so many children in our own country, turning tricks to make a few dollars, sexual favors to buy food, used by drug dealers and gangbangers, no family, no protector, no sure way to get her off the streets. And it's easy for us to opine here and say, well, that child should have made better decisions. Or people shouldn't bring a child into the world unless they're going to take care of it. Well, she should go ask for help. Get that nonsense out of here. This child has no control. She is victimized by the circumstances and powers and very real evil in her world. She is a pawn, a plaything, a cog in a broken society's wheel. And she's just trying to survive. And that could have been Ruth's fate. She's older than this little girl, I remember, but she's oh so vulnerable. Only grace or providence, luck or kismet, destiny or fortune changes that for her. She goes out to gather grain, trying to find a welcome field. She's tense, she's suspicious, as well as she should be. Her eyes darting about, assessing every danger, mapping every escape route. She sees every other poor woman as a competitor, every young man as a threat, every older landowner as a predator. I mean, when you're down and out, haven't you been there when you're down and out and you have a bad string of, of luck, you're just waiting for the next bad thing to happen, just waiting for the other shoe to drop? But it doesn't. Lo and behold, she stumbles into a favorable, favorable day's field and hope springs eternal. And it's profitable. She brings home a bushel of fresh grain from the field, more than, than enough for her and Naomi. Not just to eat, but to bake and to sell. It's a literal godsend. And Naomi, who probably has spent the entire day wondering and worrying if Ruth is being harassed or abused or raped, blurts out the obvious questions. Where did you work today? How did this happen? Who helped you? And Ruth answers in verse 19. Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Holy smokes. This isn't just some random kind old guy 
who took pity on a beautiful down-and-out young foreign girl. Boaz, of all farms to stumble upon, is Naomi's cousin. Maybe he is Naomi's nephew. The Hebrew is not completely clear, but he is kin. He is family. And with a mythos approach, we could say, well, that's just what God did. This was predetermined to be this way all along. And there might be truth in that. Certainly God is at work, but Ruth still had to get up that morning and go to work, didn't she? She still had to take a risk. Remember, hope keeps us moving. And sometimes it moves us in a Godward direction, even if that direction feels like a gamble. A couple of quick stories to illustrate this. Two little girls were always getting in trouble for being late to school. And the principal had had enough. And the principal says to these two young girls, okay, if you're late again, it's going to be a week's worth of detention for you. Well, a couple days roll around and you know what happens. They're late for school. And they're walking to school. And one little girl says, let's stop and pray and ask God to help us not be late. And the other little girl says, You can stop and pray if you want to. I'm going to pray while I run. And that makes the difference. Which of those do you think was on time at school that day? It's pretty easy to say. And there's a Zen story about a Japanese shogun who was in a terrible fight against a longtime enemy, and the enemy was stronger, had a larger army, Uh, was outfitted with more modern and better equipment, better supplied. And the shogun really had his back to the wall and his men were discouraged. And he gathered his men around him and he said, look, we're going to pray. And then we're going to flip this coin in my hand. If it's heads, we're going forward knowing we will have victory. If it's tails, we will retreat, signaling our defeat. He throws The coin into the air, and sure enough, it's heads. And they go forward, and the men are encouraged. They know that fate is on their side. They've said their prayers, and they go forward, and they win this great victory. Later that evening, the shogun gathers his men together again to congratulate them on the battle, and he takes that coin out, and he shows it to them again, and it's got heads on both sides. He was giving them the hope that they needed, not foolishness, because he knew the battle could be won. Pray, yes. Trust, yes. Throw yourself on the providence and possibilities of God. But hope is a verb. It moves you. It keeps you walking, running if you have to, crawling if you must. It keeps you in the battle, keeps you headed toward home. It points you in a Godward direction. Is it risk-free? Nothing is risk-free. Place your bet on hope. Go with God. It's more risky for your soul to retreat in fear and in bitterness. And I think Naomi begins to recognize this. I love her exclamation, love, love, love her exclamation in verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, 
He has not not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Again, the Hebrew is ambiguous here, just ambiguous enough to make us think. Naomi is saying one of two things. In the New Living Translation, it seems that Naomi is talking about Boaz's kindness to her and to Ruth, but also to Ruth's husband who has died. But the New International Version implies at least, at least a bit, that it is the Lord who is extending kindness to the living and the dead. That's the part I love. Just days earlier, Naomi was holding God responsible for all of her sufferings. The Lord Almighty has raised his fist against me. He has made me bitter, she said. And now she makes this shift to begin to credit God, or at least to acknowledge that God is at work indirectly through Boaz with bringing some of these broken pieces back together. I don't think she yet knows how it's all going to play out. We'll save that for a later date. But she is awakened circumstances drove her to despair, drove her to blaming God, and now circumstances lift her spirits and cause her to praise God. Do you know what this says to us about Naomi? That she is remarkably human. That she is normal. That she, we, are all just alike. She starts moving toward God, not because things were getting better, but because she had the opportunity and that latent hope within her begins to breathe again. Final story. Back to Stephen King and the Shawshank Redemption. Andy, the one who never lost hope, finally escapes Shawshank Prison. He drives south along California State Route 1, the Pacific Ocean at his right, and he jumps the border into Mexico. There's a village he promised Red that if he ever got out, this little Mexican village on the coast would be where he would go, and if Red ever gets out, he should meet him there. Zehuatanejo. I know a man from there, a missionary named John Sullivan. Randy and Lynn Pike, who formerly owned the UPS store in Seagrove, introduced me to him and to his wife, Betty. Years ago, Randy took a vacation to the Mexican coast, Zehuatanejo. He loves that little village. He was banging around the village one day on a Sunday, stumbled into a church that was being conducted in English, and the preacher was this John Sullivan And they became great friends. And then Randy and Lynn became supporters of his ministry. And I think we will become supporters as well. Certainly we should because times have been hard in Zewatneho. John Sullivan has had a good many health problems himself this past year. Listen a little bit to his story. I had lunch with John, his wife Betty, who's a Mexican national, back in 2017. She had never had a Philly cheesesteak till that day at South of Philly. And I asked the obvious question, how did you end up in Zewatneho? And he got right to it. He said, I started going there in the 1980s when I was a cocaine smuggler. And I almost fell out of my seat. Not exactly what I expected to hear. A little further back. John had once been a bantamweight prize fighter. And you can see in his picture how 
what great shape he still remains in. Boxing all over the country, even Madison Square Garden. And when that came to a conclusion, he returned home to Olympia, Washington, not far from the hypothetical setting of the Shawshank Redemption, and he opened a business. But being a business owner was so less glamorous than boxing. There was no rush. There was no adrenaline. There was no adventure. And one thing led to another, and before he knew it, he was moving kilos of cocaine for the Mexican cartels using his business as a front. And he knew he had to get out. He knew it was all going to come crashing down, but he didn't know how. What? Between being murdered by his employers or going to prison. He went to prison. Five years in federal penitentiary. He was running on the exercise track one morning, and he says that God spoke to him. I don't doubt it. You're going to give me your life, the voice said. And John stopped running, and he said, God, what life? Look at me. And the voice came back. You're going to serve me the rest of your days. And there in a federal prison, he was converted and something roused within him, a fire in his bones. And when he was released and met the conditions of his parole, like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, he jumped the border and went to Zewatneho, not as a smuggler, but as a preacher. Today, John is ordained by the Foursquare Christian Church. He has started a mission to minister to prisoners, has founded a school has a church, works with kids on the streets, sponsors soccer teams, provides wheelchairs for the disabled, has started multiple other congregations, works directly with the poorest of the poor who live on top of the city's landfill, not like our good friend Kirk Ackerman in El Salvador, not unlike our dear friend Michael Bonder from years ago. And he and his wife Betty have been married for 20 years, and now at nearly 75 years young, he stays at the work unflinching. He has hope for the people he serves, for the people who come to serve from the United States, for the people of Zewa. He has hope because he knows what it is like to have hope and to lose it and to find it again. And he knows that fear can hold you a prisoner, but hope can set you free. It can. I believe that. And you really don't even have to hold on to it. Hope will hold on to you if you just give it a little place to be carried in your heart.